Here we feel very uh, welcomed and loved, and it's a privilege to uh, preach from this pulpit. So I would ask you to, pre- to please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 6 of Luke chapter 3, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard, but I appreciate that you have a handout uh, with the verses from the ESV there with you if you want to follow along there. We will read from Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And the word of God says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Eteria and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight, and the rough roads smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, we thank you that we can gather together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, to hear your word, to hear you speak through your word to us, And Lord, as has been prayed, Lord, I also pray that we would be able to apply it to our lives, that we may live according to your purposes and your will for us. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this pulpit. I thank you for the privilege that I have to be able to expound your word. And I pray that you would help me to do it with clarity, with precision, with boldness, with love, with humility, that your name may be glorified. Lord, both uh, the preacher and the listeners, we all need your grace. We all need your Holy Spirit to be with us so that we may learn from your word. Lord, I ask that you would be with us, that you would be glorified in our midst, and that we would rejoice at the salvation that you have provided in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we will be talking about John the Baptist, and I would like to start by asking you, what comes to your mind when you hear the name John the Baptist? Is it maybe an, an image of an odd-looking person, maybe kind of hairy, or uh, maybe a, a fiery preacher with bulging eyes, or someone who lived in isolation and had a, a weird diet? Or maybe, you know, at a more basic level, no, he, you know, he just, he just went around baptizing. You know, he went around rivers and he baptized. Or even better yet, he went to a Baptist church. <laughs> After all, he was John the Baptist. And while there may be some elements of truth in that, you know, brief sampling of thoughts that we just did, I'm afraid many people do not have an accurate image of the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, Many of us probably underestimate his importance, the relevance of his ministry even to our day, and the power of his message. But our passage this morning will help us dispel wrong ideas about what John the Baptist said and did, and will show us a messenger of the true gospel. And as such, we need to listen and we need to obey as John, in our text, prepares us all for the Savior, Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want us to see that our Christian faith is rooted in history, brought forth by the Word of God. It's a repenting faith and was foretold in Scripture. So our Christian faith is rooted in history, brought forth by the Word of God, 
It's a repentant faith and was foretold in Scripture. So first, let's look at our faith as one rooted in history. From the beginning of his gospel, Luke, the writer, wants us to know that what he writes is a true historical account. If we go back just a couple of chapters to chapter 1, the very beginning of the gospel of Luke, and we read in in verse 1, he's writing uh, to somebody named Theophilus, and, and he writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And then in verse 5, he begins with historical markers. He says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. And about 30 years passed between chapter 1, verse 5, and the record of chapter 3, verse 1, that we just read, where we have the setting for the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist. So we have a historical marker there in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Eteria and Trachonitis, and Licinius was Tetrarch of Abilene. Now the information may initially sound like a sort of boring history lesson for some of us, but there are important details that we should not overlook. And to begin with, and at, at a bare minimum, it tells us that what is described really happened in time and history. Luke was careful to give us these historical markers so that Theophilus and us would know that these are true historical events. And we may relate when we try to attempt to convey to others what our own life events, how, is that, how that fits into a, a historical setting so some of you may know I, I came to the U.S. to go to Texas A&M University, twice actually, one in the 1990s and then again for grad school about you know, a little over 10 years ago. And sometimes I try to describe to another Aggie uh, what life was like at A&M when I was in school in my undergrad years. And guess what they ask me many times? How, how can we relate? How can they know what my time frame at A&M was? What do you think they asked me? Something about the football team. Yeah, who's the, who was the football coach? <laughs> who was the football coach? And then if I tell them, they're like, oh, okay, I get it, I get it. I know, I know when uh, you were at A&M. It was, it was a guy by the na- uh, last name Slocum, by the way, if you remember that. And so something similar is happening here. The ministry of John the Baptist began on the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And so Rome was the world power during this time and it was Tiberius reigning. And then from the global power, Luke narrows it down to the provincial or regional government leaders over the land of Israel. And that's why we have several names here. Now the Herod that is mentioned here in chapter three, verse one, is son of the Herod mentioned in chapter one, verse five. And that Herod of chapter one died not too long after Jesus was born. And his dominion was divided among his heir, and again, that's why we have so many names in verse 1. And as you may imagine, the sons of that Herod who tried to kill Jesus as a baby were not great rulers, did not have the, you know, the best of role models. So one of them was actually deposed, and that's how Pontius Pilate became governor of Judea. So Luke is describing us this historical setting And we could say in a similar vein today that that we have gathered in the time of, you know, President Biden, Governor Abbott, Mayor Turner, etc. We narrow it down to focus on the local area of interest, which in our passage is the land of Israel. But the verse also reminds us that 
John and Jesus ministered in a land that was occupied territory. The Jews were not free to do as they pleased, for the Romans were in charge, and yet that would not stop God from carrying out his plan according to his own schedule. His timing is always right. Can you picture God trying to send his son, and it's like, oh, no, no, Tiberius is raining, can't do that. You know, I guess we'll have to wait for some other time. No, his timing is always right. And as we look at our world today with all its chaotic expressions that lead to many times to great suffering, we need to be reminded that our God is in control always and that we have a role to play according to God's purpose for our lives. Now, when we come to verse 2, the characters we find there are not much comfort. In verse 2, we read, In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, these men were related to each other. Caiaphas was the official high priest, but he was also the son-in-law of Annas, who apparently never really left power. So they made a team, and they were the ones who presided over the group that condemned Jesus to death. So they were definitely not nice people. So what is the scene? We have Israel with pagan Gentile rulers. We have hypocritical religious rulers. But that would not thwart God's plans. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, something monumental happened. And that which happened tells us that our faith is brought forth by the Word of God. Now, to grasp the impact of what we're about to read in the rest of verse 2, it helps us to see what chapters 1 and 2 tell us. How, how does chapter 1 and 2 set the stage for the importance of what we read in, in the rest of verse 2? Well, in those beginning chapters, Luke describes the circumstances related to the conception, the birth, and the growth of both John the Baptist and Jesus. Both chapters 1 and 2 end in a similar note, describing how John the Baptist and Jesus grew. They were children, and that's what children do. They grow. So at the end of chapter 1, in verse 80, we read of John that continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So that's why he's called in the wilderness, because we're told here in, in 180 that he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance. Then in chapter 2, in verse 52, the last verse, we read that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And then in verse 1 of chapter 3, we have a transitional now. We have a, a now or an and in the case of the ESV. There, there's a transitional word there that tells us, okay, after these things happen, this is what we find. So what, what happens that gives us this transition? You know, now, after God broke his silence of over 400 years, when the angel spoke to Zechariah, the father and John the Baptist, in chapter 1, verse 13, tells him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Now, nobody had heard from God in hundreds of years, and now the angel tells Zechariah, do not be afraid. Now, after Zechariah becomes unable to speak and then had his mouth opened and his tongue loosed in praise to God, in chapter 1, verse 68, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. 
Now, after the angel Gabriel came to the Virgin Mary in chapter 1, verse 28, and tells her, Greetings, favor one, the Lord is with you. Now, after the heavenly host proclaimed in chapter 2, verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men which, with whom he is pleased. And the shepherds glorified and praised God. And after Simeon and prophetess Anna bore witness of who Jesus was, now the word of God came to John. God intervenes. God spoke. God commanded something to be done in time and history. And when God speaks, do you know what people need to do? They need to obey. God speaks and everyone needs to listen and obey, beginning with John the Baptist. So the wilderness is where John had been probably for many years until the word of God came to him. He is called in the wilderness, but he does not stay there. He goes into all the district around the Jordan River because God gave him a message to proclaim and all needed to listen to it and obey. So John's was a public ministry that began in a very similar way to the ministries of the prophets of the Old Testament. If we read, for example, Jeremiah chapter 1, and we have historical markers, what, who were the kings that were reigning, and then it says, you know, the word of the Lord came to a particular prophet. And so we have a similar formula here with John the Baptist, because once again, we have lost men and women, they are governed by rulers that are unable to lead them in the paths of life. So what does God do? He sends forth his word in the mouth of his messenger so that we may have hope. God spoke. John summons the people to hear the message and to publicly submit to that message through the waters of bat baptism. And this is all done publicly. As the Apostle Paul would tell King Agrippa many years later in Acts 26, 26, King, this has not been done in a corner. This was a very public ministry. And John's father, Zechariah, gave testimony of what the Lord would do through his son John in chapter 1, verse 76. He's praising God and, and says, Zechariah, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Do you realize that if God had not spoken and given us the knowledge of salvation, we would all be in the darkness of our sins forever without any hope whatsoever because our sin makes us spiritually blind and deaf, in fact, dead spiritually. And for us to live requires that God must intervene on our behalf and he does that through his word which testifies of his son Jesus Christ. Now let's look more closely at the content of the message and its accompanying practice. In verse 3 of Luke 3, John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. True faith involves repentance. There is simply no way around it. If you are to receive God's forgiveness of your sins, you must repent of your sins. You must turn from your sinful lifestyle, turn to God. 
You must change the direction of your mind, your heart, your will. You must realize that the way you're going leads to destruction and that you need to turn around and get on the path to life. And when you do that, you realize that it was God granting you that repentance all along so that you could believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 11, in in verse 18, after Peter and some other Jews had gone to Cornelius and had preached the gospel to the Gentiles and the Holy Spirit had had come upon them, uh, and then Peter gives a report to other believing Jews, they were almost up in arms and saying, you know, why did you go to the Gentiles? Why were you, you know, being with this uncircumcised people? And then Peter recounts what happens and how the Lord had saved them. And in verse 18 of Acts 11, uh, you know, they all rejoice and marvel because it says God had granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Repentance is granted by God. And for someone to take repentance out of the equation of saving faith would require the elimination of all references to John the Baptist in the Gospels and Acts. And we're talking about all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, plus Acts. They all talk about John the Baptist. And in fact, if we go to Mark chapter 1, I'd like you to see how Mark begins his gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark is, is beginning telling us, he's starting with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and how does he start? Verse 2 as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then back in Luke chapter 3, in that same chapter in verse 18, we read that John the Baptist preached the gospel to the people. He was preaching the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ begins with the preaching of the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And if someone were to say, okay, okay, I agree, I, I need to repent, I just don't want anyone to notice. I don't want anyone to know that I'm repenting. I just want my repentance to be, you know, a private affair. You know, kind of, you know, give, my, give me my space. That's not going to do. Because the ones who repented in our text submitted themselves to the baptism administered by John. He preached a baptism of Repentance. There was no repenting if you did not go through those waters of baptism and publicly show your submission and allegiance to God and to his message. And that, too, is the work of God so that no one may boast, as Ephesians chapter 2 says. And I know you're familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, but I want to emphasize that by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It's the work of God from beginning to end, and that includes repentance. And when there is true repentance... From the heart, when there is a will that publicly submits to what God commands, when a transformation happens from the inside out, you know what happens, you know what the outcome is, you know what's the result. There is forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness 
suddenly somehow realizes, somebody realizes that we have sinned great, greatly against God. And in your heart, we throw ourselves to the mercy seat of the Lord. And we ask for forgiveness. And what does God do? He forgives. Every single time. No exceptions. If somebody repents, God will forgive. The gracious and loving character of our God is displayed in his willingness to forgive all who have offended him and others and they repent and they turn from their wicked ways and they turn to the one true and living God. So perhaps there's a a sinful attitude or, or a sinful lifestyle that you've been trying to hold on to even to today, even as a true believer. And God is calling you and me to forsake it, to turn from it, and to ask for forgiveness and receive the forgiveness that only God gives. And where public confession is appropriate, let's not neglect that. And if you're a new believer and you have repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ but have not gone through the waters of baptism, then do not neglect that either. Identify yourself publicly with the Lord Jesus Christ and testify that God's forgiveness is an amazing thing. The grace of God is always ready and willing to forgive. And this is so incredible that God throughout history has had to showcase this numerous times and explain it not only to us, but sometimes to some of his own prophets. And I'm thinking here of Jonah. So if you could please go to Jonah chapter 3 in the Old Testament, I want us to see how Jonah understood at a certain level the gracious character of God, and and he did not like it. Now, while you turn there to Jonah chapter 3, again, I like to think of, you know, what do you think when I say the prophet prophet Jonah? It might be you think of that great fish, a great whale, or if you're on the younger side, you might think of veggie tales. Um, But, you know, it's, it's astounding to read that Jonah understood the extent of the grace of God, And that's exactly the reason why he did not want to go to Nineveh to preach. He did not want to go to the heathen land of Nineveh and preach because he he had an understanding of what could happen. And when he ended up in Nineveh through a quite forceful and dramatic journey, as I'm sure many of you will recall, in Jonah chapter 3 verse 4, Jonah cries out in Nineveh and says, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So he's preaching to Nineveh as God commanded him, saying, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. You know, the Lord has seen what you've done, and and he's going to judge you. But then in verse 5, there's another transitional word. There's a, a then in the NASV. It says, then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And here we see that internal repentance that doesn't stay internal, it begins internally, but doesn't stay that way, then it goes on to a public display. Jonah 3.5, the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation that said, Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn. There's the word. They turn. Each may turn from his wicked way, and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? 
God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. The king of Nineveh was saying, could it be that God will not destroy us? Could it be that if we forsake our evil ways and turn to him, that he will forgive? And let's not miss the genuine attitude of repentance from the Ninevites. They realized God had the power and authority to obliterate them totally, completely. There is no attempt to negotiate with God. There is no shred of arrogance, no desire to justify, to justify wrong, no defiance whatsoever, but instead a total, honest, complete surrender to the mercy of God. We will repent and perhaps God will spare us. And what was the result? Jonah knew it. The Ninevites were not sure. Jonah knew it. Verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And the Ninevites at this point experience the character of God better than the understanding that Jonah had about the character of God. Because let's see the reaction of Jonah in verse 1 of chapter 4. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Amazing. This whole city repented, turns to God, and Jonah is angry. And not only that, he tells us why he's angry. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew, I knew it. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Both Jonah and the Ninevites had a knowledge of the mercy of God, but it's obvious that we need to repent like the Ninevites and not be sinfully angry like Jonah. We need to know that God is pleased to forgive everyone who repents. And there is a counterpart in the New Testament to this story of Jonah, and I'm sure you're very familiar with it. So if you want to go now to Luke chapter 15, there's a story about a son who asks his father for the portion of his inheritance and wasted it in, in sinful living. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 14, we read that when this son had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pots that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, here's the turning. Here's that internal turning, that internal repentance that does not stay internal. It will, it will show itself in outward deeds. Verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. No negotiation. No arrogance. But complete 
humility. And what did the father do? He forgave. That's what God does. He forgives. Verse 20. So the son got up, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Why? For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. God is quick to forgive the sins of all who come to him in repentance. But as in Jonah, in Luke 15, we have someone that's angry because the father is quick to forgive, and that was the prodigal son's brother. But notice that regardless of the anger of a prophet or the anger of a brother, the Lord is and will always be A forgiving God. And that's why God sent John to preach a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So our faith is rooted in history. It is brought forth by the the word of God. It is a repentant faith. And finally, it is a faith foretold in Scripture. Back in Luke chapter 3... In verse 4, it says, As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. It was a custom in first century times to have people go ahead before a ruler that planned to visit a particular region. And these messengers would make sure there were no roadblocks along the way. And they would, just as importantly, announce the message the ruler wanted the people to know before his arrival. And so the passage that Luke is citing here in verses 4 through 6 comes from Isaiah chapter 40. And it's part of the responsive reading we had earlier in the service. And if if you paid attention, the passage in Isaiah is one of hope. Now please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40 because I want you to see the hope that is transmitted through this passage that now Luke is taking and citing it in relation to the ministry of John the Baptist. So Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Now let's go to verse 5, where it says that the glory of the Lord will be revealed. All flesh will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then we read in verse 9, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. And verse 11, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs. So what is the forerunner doing? What is, the, what is John the Baptist doing? According to Luke, citing Isaiah 40, he is bringing good news. He is making ready the way of the Lord and making his paths straight. And how is he doing this? By preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Hearts were being prepared so that there would be no spiritual roadblocks for the Lord. 
and the people would be ready for the coming of God's anointed one, the one of whom John testified. Even in, in chapter 3 of Luke, verse 16, John says, the one who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. John knew his place. He knew he was a herald crying out, making straight paths in people's hearts that they would be ready for the coming Savior. And I'll say it again, a personal, private heart repentance always expresses itself publicly. Not only were people coming to John and being baptized, going through the waters of baptism, but they were also asking John, what were they to do? So Luke chapter 3, in verse 10, we have recorded a conversation between people in the crowd and John the Baptist. Luke 3.10, the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And John would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. In every case, you see a willingness and a desire to do whatever it is that the Lord would have them do in their own situation, in their own context. And we see that same attitude later on in Luke chapter 19 with Zacchaeus. Luke 19.8, we read of Zacchaeus after he had received Jesus. He stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Complete submission, complete humility, willingness to do whatever the Lord wanted him to do. You see Zacchaeus saying, Lord, you know, I, I defrauded in so much. Do I really have to give more? It's like it's coming out of his heart. Lord, I want to give because you have transformed my life. That's the attitude of someone who has repented. So the ministry of John the Baptist prepare the hearts of God's people to receive the Savior, and this is all God's work. Let's look at the certainty of the language in verses 5 and 6 of Luke 3. So verses 5 and 6 say, in the ESV, Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God shall, 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 in the NASV, will, will, will. There is no doubt whatsoever that the Lord will do this. He will prepare a people for himself. He will transform hearts. He will transform lives. He will make a people ready to receive his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The herald goes before the Lord and he encounters a roadblock, a ravine, it will be filled. If there's a mountain and a hill blocking the way, it will be brought low. If something is crooked, it will be straightened. And if something is rough, it will become smooth. Is the herald that great? Can the herald do all this? No, it's not the power of the herald. It's the power of him who sent the herald that is going to do all this. It's by the power and decree of the King of kings and Lord 
of lords. And what is the end result? What is the outcome? What, what has this sermon build, building up to? And what is Luke building up to with all that he has said up to now? It's leading up to verse 6. The high point of the citation of Isaiah for Luke. Verse 6 says, And all flesh will see the salvation of God. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All this effort is to be expended. All the district around the Jordan River will listen to this preacher. The crowds will come, and they will include religious and political leaders who would come to see what's going on and see these baptisms. And what is it for? It's so that all flesh might see the salvation of God. So that everyone would be ready to see the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 2, there is a man who was prepared by God to see the Lord Jesus, in this case, baby Jesus, in Luke 2.25. We read, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death, before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he, Simeon, took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. Why? For my eyes have seen your salvation. He could have said, my eyes have seen a baby, but he doesn't say that. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you, God, have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Listen to the universality of it all. All flesh, all peoples, a lie to the Gentiles, glory of your people Israel, Jews, Gentiles, slave, free, rich, poor, everyone is going to hear and see the salvation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Some will see it for salvation. Some will see him for judgment. But all flesh is going to know and see that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of all. The forerunner came that all flesh may see the salvation of God. And the word of God has been preached for 2,000 years and will continue to be preached so that all flesh may hear so that all flesh may see. And Luke develops the rest of his gospel and the book of Acts, which he wrote as well, to make crystal clear to us that the salvation of God is found in Christ Jesus and only in him. And I cannot end my sermon without asking you, have you seen the Lord Jesus as this passage is telling us to see him? Has your heart been prepared by God in repentance to receive the Lord Jesus Christ? If your heart has been prepared and you have not received Christ, cry out to him. Do not delay. Because he made you ready, not for you to stay where you are, but to run to Jesus and to receive the forgiveness of sins that only God gives and to be a part of the body of Christ his church. You don't want to stay there with just a prepared heart. In Acts chapter 19, the apostle Paul encounters some and he asked them, into what were you baptized? 
And they answered, into John's baptism. So they were ready. They had been prepared. But they had stayed there just in preparation. But notice what Paul says in Acts 19.4. Paul told them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, after John, that is in Jesus. The reason why God sent John the Baptist, the reason why God prepares your heart in repentance so that you may turn from your wicked ways is so that you may believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we spend a whole sermon talking about John the Baptist so that you may believe in Jesus Christ. Because that's why God sent the forerunner. If you have believed in Jesus, do you realize that God testified of His Son way before He began His public ministry? As believers, let's not neglect the preparatory work that God does in our hearts so that we may repent and receive his forgiveness. And let's not neglect the preparatory work that God does in somebody else's hearts. Maybe somebody that we're ministering, that we're sharing the gospel with. But the goal and the prayer is that we may all be ready to believe and obey everything that God tells us in his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to stand in awe of your grace and your mercy. Lord, you are a merciful and gracious God, abounding in loving kindness, or extending your mercy and your grace to anyone who repents. Lord, we thank you that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came to bear witness of the light. He was not the light. But he came to bear witness of the light that all may believe through him. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And your word says, And we beheld your glory, glory as of the only begotten, of the Father, full of grace and truth. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for sending the herald before the Lord Jesus Christ, that our hearts would be prepared to receive our Lord. Lord, I pray for anyone that has yet to receive the Lord Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation. And I pray for all my brothers and sisters who do know you. I thank you for the work that you've done in them. And I pray that you would, you would make us repentant people so that we would be ready to repent and ask for forgiveness and that we would be ready to forgive others as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.